When Music for Food goes to a food pantry and plays, we again get exactly that kind of diverse background audience, some of whom actually are sitting there with a score and saying, I used to be a choral conductor, <laughs> and some of whom have absolutely no idea of the grammar and language of classical music. However, all of them respond. And I've come to believe that there is a sixth sense, which I think has something to do with recognizing the golden mean, the Fibonacci number, that all human beings actually recognize great art, whether they know the language or not, and respond to it, as Gwen said, viscerally and in a very, very deep way. That's something that gives me great hope. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. My name is Joe McHugh, and in September of 2017, my wife Paul and I were on our way to Ireland when we decided to stop off in Boston to meet with members of an organization called Music for Food. One of the founders of the organization is the noted viola player Kim Kashkashian, who teaches at the New England Conservatory of Music. And that's where we set up our microphones inside Miss Kashkashian's music studio for the interview. We began the conversation with Cashman Kerr Prince, who was then the general manager of Music for Food, and a violinist named Jenny Jew. We were later joined by Miss Kashkashian, cellist Gwen Grosnick, and Christopher Rooning, a violin expert who owns a violin shop in Boston. Our conversation wove its way back and forth between the purpose and goals of the Music for Food organization and the personal stories of those who support this effort with their talent, time, and energy. My name is Cashman Kerr Prince. I am the general manager of Music for Food. Uh, this is a nonprofit that started eight years ago uh, here in Boston. Uh, the idea is that we are raising awareness about hunger and we are raising resources for those in need. At our concerts, we're transforming the music into food. So we have started in Boston. Uh, this is the idea of the violist Kim Kashkashian. Um, started over dinner uh, as an idea. It has become a reality and we now have chapters in uh, at this point, I think we're up to 12, because we have two new that are in the works starting this season, uh, 12 chapters across the U.S. Uh, so it's a model that's really taken off uh, as musicians come together to try and address this large problem of hunger, but to do it on a local level within their own communities. And so the program's designed to um, involve musicians Correct. Uh, who then will go out and play these concerts mm -hmm. and uh, in I'm, I, from what I understand, all kinds of different venues. A exactly. So we have two core principles uh, that we stick to. The musicians are volunteering their time and talent, and all of the money that we raise is going to a local food pantry. So we don't sell tickets ahead of time, really. We do some subscriptions here in Boston, but you know, basically at the door we have a suggested donation, um, and people give us money. They hear fabulous musicians, great concerts, and Everything that we raise, uh, we announce at intermission how many meals we've just created, uh, and all that money is going to go to a local pantry. We get someone from the pantry to come to the concert. They'll talk about the work that they do. Uh, here at New England Conservatory, where we have a number of our uh, core concerts, we support the Women's Lunch Place. So I know you're staying on Newberry Street, a couple blocks down from where your guest house is, in the basement of one of the churches there is uh, the Women's Lunch Place. It's very much a, a Boston institution. It's been around for 40 years, more than that now, I think. Uh, it's a women's only daytime shelter, and they prepare a hot meal for them. They offer uh, laundry. They offer a, a phone line or an address if you're applying for a job. Uh, they offer all kinds of help meeting women wherever they are on their own journey and then trying to help them along. We also work with the chamber music students here at New England Conservatory. We take them to the Women's Lunch Place and they perform there. So it's another way that we're 
trying to connect music with community and strengthen communities. I love this idea of uh, looking at how the mediums of what we do function. Mm -hmm. This project is primarily about the medium of the violin, the viola, the cello, Mm -hmm. and the bass, and how they... uh, how we interact with these right. boxes of wood and metal and horsehair and bows. But this idea of a project to raise money, but at the same time to understand that that process itself is its own medium and its own form of storytelling in a sense. And so going into these places and performing, I really like that. I think that's great. Because uh, on the way out here, I was... Uh, at the airport, a woman walked by, had a T-shirt on, and it had music equals life. And, of course, nice. I thought I knew I was coming to talk to you folks. <laughs> and food is life. Exactly. You know? But that other idea of, you know, what feeds the soul. So tell us who you are. My name is Jani Ju. I'm a violinist. And this year, I'm a fellow for Music for Food organization. A fellow. And so that means uh, you would be, how long will you be associated with the project? Um, I suppose it's a yearly thing, um, but we will see. Um. It's a lifelong commitment, Jannie. Did we tell you this? <laughs> Did we tell you this? <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm good with that. <laughs> so tell me a little about your own journey as a musician, where you grew up and what, what brought you to the violin. So I was born in Korea in 1989. Um, When I was about 11 years old, my parents moved our whole family to Nebraska because they were getting a little tired of the bustle, hustle and the bustle of the city life in Seoul, Korea. And my mom had a friend in Aurora, Nebraska, of all places. Um, And the friend ran a hospital there. And because my mom was a nurse at the time, my friend was or her friend was able to invite her over to work in Aurora, Nebraska. So I grew up, it was a very idyllic childhood, really. I grew up next to horses and cows, and um, I went, spent my summers riding horses and things like that. And then when I was in high school, I went to Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan. And while I was there, my parents moved to Seattle, Washington. So um, now when I go home, I go back to Seattle. And you said the reason you wound up even playing any violin was because your grandmother? What was that story? Oh, so when I was younger, I was quite a tomboy. (laughs) And my grandma thought that playing a musical instrument would bring some level of sophistication into (laughs) this wild, unruly granddaughter of hers. So um, she started me on violin as a hobby. But you didn't think this is what you would do? No, I didn't think so at all. And you Um, said your father uh, is a lawyer? Is he trained as a lawyer or was in... Finance, too, also. Right. So my, so I didn't think I would do violin because growing up, my dad had gone to law school and my grandpa was also a lawyer. So I thought I would follow that path. And um, I, I really enjoyed that part of the career development as well. I was in debate and I did a lot of speech and um, I did a lot of like, you know, Supreme Court kind of classes growing up. And I really loved that. And I wanted to be a judge <laughs> but <laughs> clearly, <laughs> that has changed. <laughs> and uh, okay, okay, tell me then. You, so you had done this time. You went to not times <laughs> a prison sentence. So you went to you went to Interlochen, which is a great opportunity uh, yeah. to see a whole other world and a community mm-hmm. of uh, kindred souls. Often we hear this from some people I interview. They'll say they, they kind of felt like outsiders in the community they lived, mm-hmm. you know, taking their violin to school kind of thing, you know, were they the nerd kid or whatever. And then they go to one of these music camps mm-hmm. and they they find their people, you know, they find their soulmates. Yeah. And I love that as, as uh, something that happens in someone's life. But you went to Interlochen, but still not at that point didn't think you'd play the violin as your livelihood. No, um, actually Interlochen has a very robust academic program. And that's why my parents allowed me to go there. Um, In Aurora, Nebraska, there wasn't even an orchestra. So I was just doing violin on the side by myself. And uh, um, I started going to music festivals when I was about 14, I think. And I really loved being able to be immersed in it. And so when I had a chance to go to Interlochen and do both music and academics, I really jumped at the chance, so I went there. 
But even when I was graduating, I was really torn. Um, so in under, when I started undergrad, in University of Nebraska at the time, the Kiara String Quartet had a residency there. And they had seen me grow up from the time I was little because they were also in Nebraska. And, you know, there aren't that many musicians in Nebraska, so we all kind of know each other. And I think they knew that I wanted to be a musician, even though I hadn't come to that conclusion myself. So they invited me to come to University of Nebraska, and they promised to give me a very rich musical education while I was pursuing my pre-law degree. So I went and did that. Yeah. Could you, and just if possible, put into words, because you do have that ability with <laughs> all the, you know, the debate and... Uh, and the law, I, I love that idea of being able to use language so specifically. But this might be harder. What is that shift where suddenly you decide music is that important mm -hmm. and that you're going to give yourself to that? And yeah. what are you giving yourself to? Can you try to put that into words in some way for you? I mean, what your experience of that was. Do you know the moment? Uh, so... I remember very specifically the moment where I decided to be a musician. It was my junior year of college. And, you know, music isn't something that you just all of a sudden decide to pursue, right? It's, I feel like for a lot of musicians, it's kind of an inner calling almost. Um, and for me, because I had grown up for so many years, like being so focused on being a lawyer, that I wasn't really listening to my inner voice telling me that this is what I wanted to do. But I think a lot of my mentors could see that this was what I wanted to do. So what happened was um, Heyoung Yoon, which, who, who was my teacher at the time, and she's a second violinist of the Kiara String Quartet, she asked me out for dinner, and we had dinner together and we just talked, and I talked through all of my fears and reservations about being a musician, really. I think that was what was preventing me. And maybe like letting my parents down because I wasn't following the path that um, I was set on f pursuing since I was very little. And I don't know, she had this way of really like um, guiding me towards the path that I really wanted to take and kind of talking me through all of the fears. And in the end, I realized you know, all my parents wanted was for me to be happy and pursue a life that's fulfilling and a life that's, you know, um, helpful for myself as well as for others. And yeah, that's when I decided that this was the path I was going to take. I did finish my degree and um, pre-law and math and history minors and things like that. But in the end, I decided to do my master's in music after that day. It's an interesting idea that I have not thought about it, the, the role of the music teacher. Yeah. Um, you know, we think about, well, they're going to show you how to, this technique or mm -hmm. this particular bow hold or right. all this. And, and that's a very large part of what they're doing. But since they have gone down this road themselves, mm -hmm. they were at that crossroad where exactly. they had to make that decision. They can guide that or at least be uh, the person to talk to. Right. Who would understand what Oops. you're giving yourself to because yeah. it's, it's not something you can grab hold of, can you? No, and I think music is very unique in that, you know, in how many other fields do you have one-on-one -on -one, um, interaction for such a prolonged amount of time, right? In music, we have one-on-one -on -one lessons weekly and for years in many cases. I mean, even just in undergrad, you have same teacher. You meet them for an hour every week for four years. That's very rare in this time and age to have that kind of personal attention. And for me and the Kiara String Quartet, because we have known, I mean, they knew me since I was 14. So, I mean, that's a lot of time to spend one-on-one -on -one with a child um, and a student and mentor them through this whole growing up phase of their life. That's it's, cool. It's very much a, a mentorship or an old-fashioned apprenticeship kind of model. Um, I think of Aristotle right. and Alexander the Great. I mean, this idea exactly. of the personal mentor who, yeah. who really walks with somebody through their life. I know the Waldorf School program often is trying to get to that. They'll have the same teachers. We'll move from first grade to second grade. You move with the same teacher. So yeah. there's that relationship over mm -hmm. time. 
which yeah. I do like. Yeah, I think it's very special. Um, yeah, definitely. So we had been speaking earlier about your parents and um, their sense of philanthropy, giving back. This this concept that whatever comes to us isn't necessarily ours, just to use any way we want. So. What kind of things did they do that you saw growing up, and how do you think that inspired you to then come to a program like this, uh, Music for Food? So growing up, my parents emphasized giving back to the community um, from a very young age. So because my mom is in the medical field, and when my dad came to the United States, he moved into the financial field. So um, for example, in Seattle, they helped to run a free clinic. So they provide free medical services to those in need in Seattle area. And um, of course, their skill sets were very suited for that. You know, my dad worked with the finance side of it, management side of it. And my mom, of course, worked with the patients. And when I was thinking about being a lawyer, it was very clearly cut out to me what I could do to give back. But when I became a musician, it wasn't as clear. So until I got involved with Music for Food, I did a lot of Um, outreach kind of things where I went to rural communities to perform and bring that kind of culture to where um, maybe that isn't as easily accessible. Or I focused on more educational kind of programs. Um, I started an educational program in Lincoln where I gave free coaching, chamber music coachings to high school students. But of course, that kind of outreach, while it's very important, it doesn't administer to the basic human needs Um, which would be like food and shelter and medical needs. So when I found out about Music for Food um, through my teacher here in Boston, at Boston University, Bela Kais, I thought that was really great because, you know, you're directly affecting the human needs, the basic human needs through your art, which I think is really incredible. One of the things that I really love about Music for Food and that really drew me to volunteer with them and then eventually to apply and become their general manager is that we don't say that food or shelter are more important than music. We really take the stance, we we, we firmly hold to the belief that both are important, that music and food are important and that that's what you need as a human being. And we're trying to help with that. So certainly we're transforming the music at our concerts into food. So we, we talk about how the, the nourishment of the music becomes you know tangible, the ineffable becomes tangible for those in need. But we also are taking the music to people in shelters um, through the chamber music um, classes here at New England Conservatory. We're really trying to say, no, humans have a right to food and to music. Uh, it, it's a lot like if you know, um, oh, just over 100 years ago in uh, Lowell, Mass., as I recall, there was a textile mill strike. The women in the mill went on strike, and it's called the bread and roses strike. They said that they wanted both bread and roses in their life. Well, we're taking a similar stance. It's music and food, and you shouldn't have to choose between them. You, you should have a right to both. Being a storyteller... I look a lot at how we tell stories in our society. And uh, I I wrote a book about this. And the last chapter of the book I titled The Sustainable Imagination. And because I really see a parallel with the way that we grow food, going back to Nebraska, Mm -hmm. this um, industrialized process that we have of uh, using often petrochemical-based fertilizers and and getting high yields, but pumping this material into the soil and essentially exhausting the soil in the process. So it becomes dependent upon this type of agricultural fertilization to continue. And I think we're doing that now with the imagination. The imagination is where we grow our, our fantasy, our nighttime dreams, our our daydreams. I mean, it's it's very similar to my mind to that farmer's field. And I think there's things that we have to do. It, it needs to be fertilized, but in a way that's sustainable over time. And this is where the playing of music or the telling of stories or the painting of a picture or a quilting or taking a good canoe trip. Uh, these are stimulating activities for human beings, but they're sustainable. They're within a context where now everything is so intense uh, even when it's wonderfully done, 
sometimes I see some things being done with the violin. It's true spectacle, whether it's in Vienna or whether it's, you know, river dance or whatever, where, you know, every possible thing they can put in there to heighten the sense of the violin. And I'm not so sure that, um, well, it's obviously not sustainable to my mind. Well, I, I think that's true. And it's also, um, because at Music for Food, we're musician-led, there's another aspect to that, that if music is your career, it can quickly become a depleted field because it's it's your job. And I think it, it makes that shift from something that's your your passion and your spark and your inspiration, but if it becomes purely a career job, um, you're jet-setting around the world, performing, you never really know what city you're in because it's, you know, what's the old uh, film line? It's Tuesday, it must be Brussels. Uh, you know, the, it, it's that kind of a life. And I think one of the things that Music for Food is able to provide is to reconnect the musicians with that power of music within a community, uh, that power to really open hearts and minds to transform lives, both in our audiences and our core concerts, but then also the people who go and play at the pantry. They find it to be this richly rewarding experience that you're reminded of that power of music, but you're also able to use this skill, this talent that you have to give back, to make a more sustainable community, a tighter-knit community um, for yourself and others. Well, this is almost the farm-to-table thing where mm-hmm. you have exactly. these uh, uh, CSAs, Community Supported right. Agriculture. I think there should be community-supported arts. That artists, even of a very high level, have that potential, make a commitment to a particular community and say, I'm really not going to pursue this touring career uh, where I become the artist who is in this town and that town, but this is my community. And I'm going to find every way possible to make my art relevant and meaningful and, and important to that community. But at the same time, the community should make some commitment to that artist. I think artists find communities don't you know, provide any guarantee that they can possibly live in a, in a smaller you know, city or mid-sized city. And so I, I'd love to see someone pursue the idea of community-supported art as a model. How could you have subscriptions beforehand that would say, we right. can support this amount of art, right. and uh, the artists become just as important? And often I've seen uh, the, the Dirt on Farmer John, this uh, documentary done about this fellow who started a community-supported agriculture south of Chicago, and he was just an artist at heart. So he would have these uh, artisans that would be there when you brought your family to pick the beans because, you know, you were signed up. You were part of the the, uh, the farm. But then they could see uh, this woman throw a pot and, and do other things. So, again, back to your bread and roses, right. I, which I really <laughs> think is something we have to think holistically about. It's th- that's, that's our origin, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. A little bit of your background, Cashman. Um, so I am not a musician at the level uh, trained at the level of the people I work with. Uh, I do play cello. I play locally with the Brookline Symphony, uh, which is a, an amateur ensemble based uh, in the community just next door to Boston. Um, you may know of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Well, Brookline would have the same initials, so we call ourselves the other BSO. Um, <laughs> the uh, And I think we do rather well for a community ensemble, but it's another way in which I think we're bringing local music at a local level. Uh, One thing that's really great, and it sort of ties in with my work life now at Music for Food, is that the Brookline Symphony performs a concert, and then the following Monday, we take the orchestra and almost the whole program, and we go and play at a local senior center. Um, So we may have to scale it down if the soloist isn't available or, you know, shorten it a little bit. But we're also taking the music to those who can't come to us. Uh, And, you know, as Jannie was talking about growing up in a a family of philanthropy, I think I similarly grew up in a kind of family where you helped out the people you knew, you helped out your neighbors. Um, It was just how my grandparents were, how my mother was, how, you know, how we were. And this was in northern uh, Louisiana? Northern Louisiana was where I grew up. Listening to Jenny talk about how she encourages her students to immerse themselves in the history of the music they play, I was curious how the musicians working with Music for Food present the music they perform to audiences at homeless shelters and community kitchens. 
What kind of narratives do you wrap around what they're hearing, making this relevant to people who maybe are on the edge, Mm -hmm. who are just trying to figure out how to be in the world, uh, Mm -hmm. have enough, and then you bring this music into their world and how to talk about maybe what it was like back in the day? Yeah, I think the classical music, I don't think it needs to be um, put on a pedestal, and I don't think it should be put on a pedestal, because at the time, it was pop music at the time. It's just music for the people. It wasn't this high-class thing, you know, way back when. And I think music is just music. Any good music is good music. So when I approach it, um, and when I perform, I love to give the audience something to grab onto, you know, um, even though I think a lot of people can relate emotionally very um, strongly, I think classical music does have a little bit of a learning curve, as to say, kind of you have to learn the language just a little bit. Um, so I like to give them, you know, like something to make that a little bit easier, like an emotional context to grab onto. You right. know, um, if something was happening in the composer's life and and um, Maybe that wasn't exactly why he wrote it, but if it was happening and the music is portraying that emotion, it's really great, I think, to give them a story that they can like relate to because it might be happening in their life as well. So I have a, a great example of this. Um, last year, we took uh, a group of chamber music students from New England Conservatory uh, over to Women's Lunch Place, and they performed. And uh, as I'm remembering it, it was a movement of uh, a Charles Ives uh, quartet, string quartet. And Ives is not your usual fare, and <laughs> you know you don't always know how people are going to react to it. But they did this brilliant way of uh, contextualizing it, of pitching it, and they said. You know, to us, this music is like four people sitting around a table having an argument. So you're going to hear this voice, uh, and then this voice is going to interrupt, and then you're going to hear th- these two having like a, a side fight. And it was just a really brief, you know, emotional way into the music, as you were describing, Channing. But the women at the lunch place, they totally got it. They loved it. It, it was like one of the most power, powerful performances last year. So that was a, a brilliant example of, you know, giving that kind of a context. And you're you're absolutely right. It, it it doesn't have to be put on a pedestal. It's totally approachable. You just sometimes have to help people make that first step into it. Yeah. Having spoken with Jenny and Cashman, I now had the opportunity to speak with Kim Kashkashian, one of the founders of Music for Food, and a celebrated musician in her own right, as well as cellist Gwen Grosnick and Christopher Rooning, an expert on the history of the violin and one of the most respected dealers of high-quality violins in the world today. Hello, I'm Kim Kashkashian, um, born of Armenian parents, immigrants, first generation, in Detroit, Michigan, together with my brother. Um, we grew up in a non-musical family, but a family that loved music very much. And my father sang all the opportunes and all the Armenian folk songs every night. And we, we grew up surrounded by the love of music. I'm, both of us, my brother and I, began to play our instruments through what is now pretty much, a, unfortunately, very rare. We had music in the public schools. So we were allowed the gift of choosing an instrument and having lessons through our public school. So both of us started that way, kind of meant that I had a group lesson twice a week for a half an hour, and I was told to go practice and make it better. And how did the, uh, how was it you came to the violin in this process? I came to the violin unwillingly. (laughs) (laughs) My instrument of choice, after hearing all the instruments at school, was the clarinet. (laughs) I loved the sound of the clarinet and I went home saying mom mom I really want to play the clarinet and because we were in um, a family situation that um, was rather tight financially 
The answer was, well, you can take music lessons, but you're going to have to play your cousin's violin. She stopped playing it. It's just sitting in the closet. I won't rent you a clarinet. That's too expensive. So I started with the violin and moved as quickly as possible to the viola, which is the same range as the clarinet. <laughs> so yeah, so I you know I spent my first four years playing the violin and then went to the Interlochen Arts Academy as a high schooler, and they had lo and behold, thank you God, an instrument music library, and I got my hands on a viola. And what was that? Do you remember what that particular viola was, like its make or anything? Oh, about good it? heavens, no! It was a, a, a rather a factory model school instrument. It was nothing special. Yeah. But after two years with that instrument, I was in my junior year of high school, and I was graduating as a junior, and it became necessary for our family to think about acquiring an instrument for me. At which point, everybody got involved. My private school teacher, all the friends, and anyone who might have known anything, because we needed to find a good viola that would take me through college and that wasn't too expensive. And we ended up, it was a beautiful story, actually. I was supposed to look at a viola, which was um, owned by someone who taught at the University of Michigan, so not too far from my home. And when we called to make an appointment, he said, I have to tell you something horrible. That instrument was stolen from me last month. I don't have it anymore. So we kept searching. Two months later, we got a phone call from them. He said, guess what? The insurance company found my viola. If you want to look at it still, it's in New York in the insurance company office. <laughs> well, because we had relatives in New York and we hadn't made a trip in a very long time, my mother decided that we could afford to do that. We went, we looked at the viola, which was sitting upside down in a file cabinet in the insurance company office, and I picked it up, the bridge was crooked, the sound post was crooked, I you know, kind of a mess, and I looked at it, and I tried to straighten the bridge, which I had no experience, but I tried. Played a few <laughs> notes, and I said, I want it. It's for me. It's those first couple notes? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's like you've been waiting for this thing, you know. So we negotiated <laughs> with the insurance company to buy the instrument. Now, a little-known fact if a beautiful musical instrument is stolen and recovered by an insurance company, its value doesn't double. It's halved. So we got a very, very good deal on the viola, the bow that happened to be in the case, and the case itself. Well, this is a secret you just it's revealed a, for no, people looking no, for instruments. I think it's... I think uh, I would call insurance companies. Well, I, think, I th believe that that's just how it is. Yeah. yeah. At least back then it was. That was in the, I hate to admit it, but the, the very late 60s. Actually, today it's a rather valuable instrument, but we spent $1,000 on all of that stuff at that time. And I played that viola until I was 35 years old. It was a good enough sounding instrument that I played it until I was 35 college. and I was supposed to go on the stage of Carnegie Hall with Gidon Kramer and play the Mozart Sinfonia Concertante. And he looked at me in his quizzical way and he said, you cannot play that viola on Carnegie Hall stage. Find a viola. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and how long did but, you have? I don't, I, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, do it. He was pretty merciless back then. If he ever hears this program, I'm going to say I was, in retrospect, grateful for that merciless quality in many ways, both musically and personally. So I did the only thing I could, which was to go to the local violin shop at the time, Jacques Francais, and say, 
I've been ordered to find a viola. (laughs) I don't have any money. Could I borrow one for this? And they're very nice about such things and said, of course you can if you can find something your size here. So I looked at all of the important violas that they had, and nothing really suited me. They were mostly too big. Um, And I went home rather despairingly, shut up in my little studio, and didn't know what to do. Got a phone call from Rene Morel a few hours <laughs> later. He said, I think I know what you can do. You need to call Pincus Zuckerman. <laughs> I said, excuse me? I don't know him. Well, he has the viola that you need, and he doesn't <laughs> use it all the time. He only plays it sometimes, and I know that's the viola that you need. I said, would you call for me, please? I don't know him. I can't call him. And Renee called, and Pinky agreed that I could borrow the viola for this concert. I fell in love, of course, with his Amati viola, and played that concert, gave it back to him in tears, and he looked at me and he said, well, you know, when I come back next month, I'm not going to need it for five weeks. Would you want to play on it? I said, oh, yeah, yes, of course. We did that for two years. Every time he came back to New York, he'd call me and say, you want it for four and a half weeks, or do you want it for this or that? Um, So I borrowed his viola like that, which not very many people would do, by the way. I want to say a really deep thank you to him, too. I borrowed it until I heard, years later, I was already living in Germany, that it was on the market, that he had sold it because he was going to sell it because he found something he liked better at which point I was in a position to acquire it. And that was the viola upon which I did most of my recording, most of my performing, until quite recently, actually. Yeah. So now I'm going to backpedal for you and go back to early childhood. One of the things I had to do when I switched to viola was to ask my brother's permission because he had begun not on violin, but on viola, two years after I did. My mother said, well, you can do whatever you want, but you have to get him to agree, because if you're playing the same instrument, that might be tough. Actually, it wasn't tough. We played viola duets at every holiday party for years, and my brother actually attended the Curtis Institute, studied with Michael Tree for a year, and then decided that it wasn't the path for him. I believe he had a huge amount of courage to do that. He quit cold turkey, went and studied science, um, ecology, um, forestry, and economics. And he runs a wonderful five-man firm that does ecological cleanup, environmental cleanup. However, for years and years after that, He was the only person I could turn to if I was trying a new piece of equipment, such as a viola or a bow. I knew that if he played it for me, it would sound exactly like I did. We had the same sound. And that takes me back to this question of origins of musical um, impetus, really, which I lay totally at the doorstep of my father's voice. I think he was the that voice and he and his love of music was what started us both off and certainly what has kept me going in a profession that has a lot of challenges attached to it. So eventually I ended up studying at the Peabody Institute of Music and with my mentor and beloved friend Karen Tuttle, whose Musical gifts were extraordinary, but who also had um, an amazing ability to give generously of her soul, of her spirit. And what she taught us, besides how to play the viola very well, was how to use the rest of us, body, spirit, brain, in every time that we walked on stage to perform. And that spirit of generosity is probably at the root, together with my father, the root of the inception of Music for Food. Music for Food was um, 
the brain baby of Miriam Freed, Paul Biss, some of our board members, Christine Arvier, who were sitting around one night at a dinner party. And after dinner, we were talking about all favorite subjects, such as our students. And Miriam said, we need ways for our students to get involved in the world. I find that my students are too isolated. They don't know what to do to be good citizens. And that was the moment Music for Food was born. And since we started the movement of Music for Food, and I have become aware of the rather shocking statistics about who goes hungry in this country, I think about food a little bit differently than I used to. Um, Even though my background is depression-age parents, and therefore very careful thinking, I'm still, when I go to the store now, I absolutely think about the fact that one in seven people in this country go hungry every night. And I make my choices a little bit more based on that fact of trying to live a careful life and not a luxurious life, which when you're in Whole Foods is very possible, right? Just find Mm -hmm. this, what our relationship to food and the way we grow food, we were talking earlier about this, and the imagination, I think they're all linked. What we do externally in the world, there's a parallel, I believe, that happens inside us. And that we can't fix those things in the outer world until we also sort of understand how these things work in us. And and there's a, a lot about being a musician is becoming mindful, I think. Uh, I think that's what the training ultimately is about. I mean, we make beautiful music and we move people and we can feel these emotions, but we're learning to really think about the present moment, not anything else when you're playing the instrument uh, or making the instrument, I think. It's, it's interesting what you're saying. I, I would again um, answer by saying much of a musician's training is in isolation. How much time we spend in isolation and then the fact that most concerts take place on a concert stage. So again, there's that pyramid effect. There's a, a bunch of people in the audience looking to a point on the stage, and that's a different form of isolation. So, so to be involved. To um, be involved in, in the community, to yes. be involved where at least the audience is included in the circle of the event and part of the event, which is another of the precepts of the movement Music for Food. We insist that the audience members are, in fact, active participants and active players in this process because they are the ones who hear us give them good music, and therefore they are the ones who give the money that will create meals to a food pantry. So it's a direct energy triangle. Musicians to audience and audience to pantry. Yeah. And pantry, meaning community, back to the musicians because we gain so much from knowing that we're helping. Yeah. Well, let me ask Gwen this. And Gwen, introduce yourself and explain how you got involved in this program. And you are one of the musicians that uh, performs in this uh, and it's good work. Uh, my name is Gwen Krosnick, and I'm a cellist. Um, I grew up in New York, just outside New York City, and have been living in Boston for the last six years. Um, I moved here to study at New England Conservatory originally with my trio, Trio Cleonese. Um, we were together for about eight years, and I am coming most recently now from being a visiting professor at Oberlin Conservatory. Um, so... I found very much at New England Conservatory, to answer your question about how I got involved with Music for Food, um, so much of our sort of 
desire and yearning for community was met as we entered the doors here. Um, though I play chamber music for a living, so I'm not in absolute isolation, um, there is a real sense of um, sort of loneliness and focus in one's work you know, on this one sort of singular thing that one does. And so being part of a community, whether whether it's at NEC or in a larger musical community or a very focused community like Music for Food, as Kim says, really satisfies a basic need that musicians have that is not met. And it's a, a point of extraordinary privilege that that's the, the need that's not met, rather than <laughs> food insecurity, rather than fear of... Uh, not having safe housing, something like that. But there is, you know, along with music, along with an outlet for sort of expressive, emotional place, community is such a basic human need. So being involved with Music for Food has been very meaningful in that way. I think a lot of musicians look at the way music gets structured, how it gets presented as a cultural event, in some cases a commodity, in a, in a culture so driven by commodity mentality and the way we think about how things are sold and bought. And uh, I interviewed Penny Brill. Do you know Penny at all? She's a violist with the Pittsburgh Symphony. Mm-hmm. And uh, she started a program uh, reaching out to the medical uh, institutions around Pittsburgh, of which there's many, uh, children's hospitals and different uh, organizations. And w- without the support of the symphony at first, in fact, they were sort of resistant to her taking so much time, but she was going in and organizing concerts in certain situations, memorial concerts for the children's hospital there, which would happen a year after a child had passed away, and they would do this uh, memorial service with a small chamber group. And so she was trying to understand how the music could be used in that particular need in our society, and uh, tremendous response by the medical community to that. And now the symphony is fully behind it. It's become a major part of what they do. And and they reimagine their their mission now. I think when these outreach programs become that fundamental, they started something kind of on the edge as an idea and then suddenly become maybe a driving force. Um, Chris, tell me who you are and um, why you're here. My name is Christopher Ruining. I'm a violin expert and dealer based in Boston. And... um, um, I became friends with Kim, and she told me about her project, and I went to some concerts, and what I really appreciated about it is that seeing this fundamental way we can give back to the world at large and in the, in the most fundamental way, um, it, it seemed to me that you know, a lot of musicians and violin makers like myself, we live in a, in sort of a isolated world um, without a lot of, necessarily a lot of awareness of our fellow human beings that may be in need. And um, I felt this was not just an opportunity to give back to that community of people, but to help raise awareness of the issue amongst our community, my community, and the larger community, so that's that's why I got involved and in, and in interested in, in the in the subject. Mm-hmm. And so you serve on the board. I serve on the board. Um, you know, I help brainstorm and come up with ideas and support in any way I can. And I guess at one point you uh, had a project involving this truck. That uh, Gwen, you want to talk about the? I always think of it as the food truck, but you know it's. In June, uh, I was involved in a concert with Music for Food that happened in the back of a traveling concert hall, which is um, organized by Yellow Barn, uh, which is a festival, music festival up in Vermont, which I've been involved in and played at quite a lot. Yellow Barn's Music Hall, spelled H-A-U-L, Um, is a traveling concert venue that is in the back of a U-Haul truck. And they've outfitted the truck with a piano, uh, microphones, and a stage that unfolds. And they go to public schools, they go to different communities, um, and 
it travels all over the East Coast. Probably at some point it will travel abroad. <laughs> um, but in June, they partnered with Music for Food and presented uh, an entire day of concerts in Brooklyn at the Smorgasburg, um, I guess it's a food market. And it's it was a really interesting experience. I grew up, um, my mother is a New York City public school teacher. Um, so when I think about playing for communities that wouldn't necessarily have access to music, I think about going to Lower Manhattan or I think about going to very um, underserved neighborhoods in the Bronx and playing Bach for people who don't have access to music. And this was a really different situation. Um, it was in, Smorgasburg takes place, I believe, in Williamsburg. I'm not a huge expert on Brooklyn geography. But it was at a very sort of boisterous uh, early summer um, Brooklyn gathering. And so it was interesting to be there. Um, we played in in music for both music for food and yellow barn style, very varied, very complex music for um, for an audience of very different backgrounds. Many of them were enjoying all kinds of delicacies that only you can that you can only find in Brooklyn, um, ramen burgers and things like this. <laughs> Where were some of these now food trucks that you were among other food trucks? It was not among food trucks, but it was among sort of food what, uh, tents. It was a sort of yeah. Market. Oh, okay. market. It was, a, it was an open market. market. Yeah, it was oh. an open market. There were no, no other trucks really. But um, but yeah, and it was, it was quite interesting. Um, Kim mentioned earlier that the, the idea of going to a concert culturally here is very much um, associated with a certain remove between performers and audience. And I, I think that's problematic. I think that it's difficult for audiences to feel that they can connect and that they can uh, react in any number of ways to music that's so far away, both physically and sort of culturally, emotionally. So it was interesting playing for people. Many of them were probably not listening super carefully. They were enjoying their crazy Brooklyn delicacies. But I had a memorable, I did have a memorable moment there. I was playing um, a piece uh, called Krosnik Soli, actually, which you'll I guess note is that's the same as my last name, and it was not written for me, but it was written for my dad, who's also a cellist. Um, it was a wedding gift for my parents, so it was, it's always very special to play this piece, Krasnik Soli, of Ralph Shapey. And it was wonderful getting to play that in this setting. Um, we were set against the river, um, lots of crazy food smells going on, and um, it's really interesting to play really complex music for people who... Uh, who experience it and react to it in a number of different backgrounds, in a number of different ways. I love playing concerts on a fancy concert stage, but I do think that there is a very different emotional experience for a performer being able to provide music for people who either have no background with it, who may feel very challenged by it, who think it's difficult to listen to, uh, or who are listening obliquely and reacting only to the most visceral moments that they can understand and react to. And I do think, with Shapey's music, for instance, that there is a certain wildness, a certain visceral quality that works wonderfully outdoors in a situation that's a little bit wild and out of control. Um, I love playing it in concert hall. But I, I do think it's interesting for us, and I don't use the word outreach. I, I really think that this is more community involvement. It's community connection. It's, um, it's give and take, in other words. May I add something to that? And yeah. just to support what Gwen was saying. When Music for Food goes to a food pantry and plays we, again, get exactly that kind of diverse background audience, some of whom actually are sitting there with a score and saying, I used to be a choral conductor, <laughs> and some of whom have absolutely no idea of the grammar and language of classical music. However, all of them respond. And I've come to believe that there's a sixth sense, which I think has something to do with recognizing the golden mean, the Fibonacci 
number that all human beings actually recognize great art, whether they know the language or not, and respond to it, as Gwen said, viscerally and in a very, very deep way. That's something that gives me great hope. I think that going to you, Chris, this uh, ongoing fascination with the violin family of instruments, particularly, you know, this idea of the old masters, Stradivari, Guarneri, violins, I find far outside of people who have a direct interest or understanding of music. That even this project, if I mentioned the stolen Stradivari Lipinski that was stolen in, in uh, Milwaukee, everybody's interested or they've heard about it. People you would, last person you'd think would say, oh, I heard about that. It registers somewhere in our mythic imagination, these instruments. And uh, so I would, I'd love you to speak to that if you could. Well, some people would argue that the violin itself, violin, viola, cello, is the pinnacle of Western artistic expression. Um, why? Because the violin is designed geometrically. It's an outgrowth of the Renaissance. And it's not just an object of beauty, but it's an object that makes this music possible. And the Western, you know, these classical composers and Baroque composers could be considered as the pinnacle of, of Western musical creativity. Um, so that's, that's why I think this viol the, the violin brings all of these things sort of together. And the violin, we were talking about uh, the um, something that people would take with them in great distress often when they were hungry, when they were being hunted, when they had to flee, but they grabbed that violin. I have friends who just last week in Florida left, evacuated Florida. What did they bring? Always their violin. They might leave the family pet home, but they're going to bring their violin with them. <laughs> Now you got the pet owners mad at you. <laughs> but no, it, it's, you know, I see this. Uh, and, you know, I've interviewed several musicians that are Jewish who talk about why the instrument is so important in the Jewish community. This was an instrument that allowed them, it was another language, where they were often learning many languages to exist and survive in many different cultures. It fascinates me how the instrument, how people just look at it. We pulled out the fiddle yesterday in the airport in St. Louis and played a couple tunes. My wife took out the banjo. Maybe it was the banjo that drew them, you know, but we had Southwest uh, ticket agents coming over. At first, I thought they were going to say, you can't play here. And they were saying, are you on your way to Nashville because the plane is leaving? <laughs> I said, no, no, we're, we're on our way to Boston. And uh, But they, oh, please play louder. Uh, and this is a time where machines and uh, that tell us they're going to connect us seem to be doing the exact opposite. They seem to create a sense of isolation. There is some studies to this effect. And I'm finding that people are thinking is creatively about how things happen that speak to our need for connection. Give an example. You know, we're, we're, of course, people have heard about the farm to table. And now there's a movement, and uh, quite successful in North Carolina, called Dirt to Shirt, if you're familiar with this, where all their uh, cotton they'd been growing had been getting shipped to China or Malaysia or places mm -hmm. where these uh, things were being made. Now you can get a shirt that is made in North Carolina, and on the very bottom of the shirt there's a few threads, colored threads, that you can go online and you can find out what field that cotton was grown in, where it was spun, and where it was made into a shirt, and it's becoming a very popular. I just did a story on the PBS NewsHour about this, and my son's in North Carolina, and he said it's really important. And, and so uh, I, I love the, the sense of uh, the structure of how you're coming at this idea of uh, music for food. Do you ever have people who come to your concerts, let's say more uh, well-to-do people that come to your concerts and know they're coming there to to make a donation. Uh, do you have them bring food uh, physically? We used to do that. Um, food is always welcome at our concerts as a donation. However, most of the food pantries tell us that they can do more, they can create more food with dollars because they can get what they need. So yes, people do bring uh, 
um, actual food donations, and we get them to the food pantries. But the the world is such today that um, the pantries themselves do better with cash because they can get what they need. And logistics for you, moving the food and all those kinds of things, that would be difficult? Well, we partner with the food pantries, and there's always someone from the food pantry at one of our concerts who would then be responsible for getting the food back to the pantry. Uh-huh. So we try to, again, make it as, as much of a community effort as possible. Is there anything, uh, Chris, in the violin dealing world where um, there's efforts to raise money through the sale of instruments towards social needs of some sort? Well, you know, I, I would say absolutely not. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I cherish this sort of uh, connection to our fellow mankind, because I'm, I'm living in a pretty rarefied world of selling instruments that are worth many millions of dollars to people who, in many cases, some people are quite aware, but a lot of people are not aware of our fellow man and, and people in need. So for me, this is a way of connecting to the community. I mean, I think we're all struggling right now because the needs are great. And uh, a lot of research proving that the, the separation is growing every day between those who are struggling and have mm-hmm. little and those who yeah. are doing very well. And that's, uh, my mother was a civics history teacher mm-hmm. at the inner city and, and that she would say that's a, a kind of a cancer within the civic body of a community. You mm-hmm. can't have these tremendous uh, differences in a society and continue that way. I mean, one of the great tragedies of being poor, I think, is you can't be generous. We don't realize that that's often a real burden, you know, when Christmas comes or when you want to have people over and, you know, you don't have the means to be generous. Rather than thinking if you're poor, you just don't have the things that you need for your own survival and and you're struggling and you're hungry. And uh, we just think of the arts often, I think, in our culture, uh, as we're saying in the public schools, where it's just, it's a nice thing, but when it gets right down to it, it's not essential. We'll cut it out. We also cut out play, and I think the play in the, in the playground is just as essential to a child's growing as anything. But I think that the sort of ability to connect to basic human emotions and to process either trauma or joy or whatever it is through access to great art, which is, is such a fundamental thing that many people don't have, in addition to food, in addition to water. That's, that's something that the organization does in a really treasurable way. Think about how children, before they speak, before they walk, they're singing mm. and they're eating. Yeah. Chris, I'd love to invite you to come to our next pantry concert. I'll give you the dates. Okay. Because it's, it's quite amazing when you see a group of women sitting around these tables and you see one of them is actually playing the p- table piano because clearly they were a musician. And someone else who clearly was never a musician has tears running down their eyes. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would love to see the, that. This is, it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes it's just a bunch of noise. Um, it's random. But when you get a moment like that, it really makes you believe. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say one thing to what you said before. Some of the most generous people I've ever met have been people in the greatest need. Mm-hmm. It's just they give what they can. But uh, And on the other hand, some of the stingiest, my, most miserly, least generous people I know are some of, these, the, some of these billionaires who just don't connect to humanity at, at large. Yeah, a strong thread in the narrative of uh, Grapes of Wrath by Steinbeck is these people in such desperate need and yet, you know, sharing whatever they had with the people that they were meeting along the way. And uh, it's it's, uh, so necessary that we always come back to understanding that. That's a fundamental human quality, just in in the same way that music is such a fundamental human quality. And I love the fact that these instruments that we're playing... They're plants, 
you know, they were plants. They just like the things <laughs> we eat. You know? We're we're <laughs> we're we as v musicians or violin makers are trying to look back in history at a time when these things were created, right? And I I do research in archives in Italy, and I'm trying to understand these people who made these violins and understand what their lives were like. And you know, if I was a musicologist, I would also like to be understanding what Mozart was like and, and what led them to this genius. And as a violin maker working today, what I'm trying to do is recreate something that was already created far better than anyone has been able to do since. Well, before we say goodbye to Boston and our friends with Music for Food, let's listen to Gwen Grosnick play a portion of the prelude to Bach's Suite No. 1 in G major for cello. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We'd also like to say a thank you to the owners and management of the Newberry Guest House on Newberry Street in Boston. It is a small and comfortable hotel within walking distance of the Berkeley School of Music and other cultural institutions, not to mention the many great restaurants up and down Newberry Street. And if you happen to know other musicians who are using their talent to help people in need, please let us know. Perhaps we can interview them also for this series. Thank you.